Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, Edwina talks smart justice and reform with Her Majesty's former Chief Inspector of Prisons and former Chair of the Parole Board, Nick Hardwick, CBE. I'm Nick Hardwick and I was Chief Inspector of Prisons for England and Wales from 2010 to 2016 and Chair of the Pro Board from 2016 to 2018 and now I'm Professor of Criminal Justice at Royal Holloway University of London. Well thank you so much for being with us and first of all could you explain to our listeners what is the Pro Board and what does it do? Well, the, the Pro Board was uh, established in the 1960s after the abolition of capital punishment. And its main function is to decide whether prisoners who've been uh, given a sentence, an indeterminate sentence, which means a sentence that doesn't have a definite endpoint, whether they're safe to be released. Um, and it's important to be clear that what the Pro Board doesn't do is retry the prisoner. So it's not about deciding whether they've been punished enough or whether they were guilty of other things. It's simply about saying, are they now safe to be released? Okay, so can you paint a picture? I'm in prison for, um, I'm in a female prison, maybe for murder. Yeah. I've murdered my husband for whatever reason. And how does the parole board come into my sphere in my prison cell? Okay, when you were sentenced, if you were convicted of murder, you would have had a life sentence. Okay. But the judge would have set what's called a tariff, which is, if you like, the punishment part of the sentence. So he would have, she would have said, look, you can't be considered for release until you serve, say, 15 years. Yeah, so you have to serve so your tariff inside prison, no release No release, nothing like that, for those sorts of offences, mm. right? So, so let's not forget, the problem only deals with a very small proportion of offences overall. But for a murder offence, so you've had a life sentence with a tariff of, say, 20 years. Right, so I've served my 20. So you serve your 20 years. And then what happens is that every two years, automatically, you'll get referred to the parole board uh, to decide whether you're safe to be released. Okay. So it's not a question of the parole board saying, we ought to have a look at that. The, you get referred to the parole board by automatically. the prison service by the by the, essentially by the Ministry of Justice. So okay. it's a kind of administrative process. Okay. And then what the parole board will get is it will get a dossier, right, which will have a lot of information about your original offence 
and a lot of information about what you've done subsequently about. Would it include information as to why I murdered my husband and taking into factors, say, like domestic violence, if that was there? Yes, it will have information that might support you, but also information, it would be balanced. It would have information uh, that might be more damaging to you. Right. Pro board would get this dossier, uh, but you, the prisoner, would get the dossier too. And mm. So you can say, look, that's not right. That's not fair. Don't don't agree with that. What if I can't read? You'll have a lawyer. You get a lawyer to support you. You'll get a solicitor okay. uh, paid for by legal aid. So you've got legal uh, advice in this case. The problem may have a look at the dossier and say, look, we need more information about this. We need more information about that. So it goes through a bit of a process of building up this very large file. On you. Mm. And then probably, in your case, you'll have an oral hearing. So they could decide just to deal with you on the basis of the file. Say, look, we're going, this person's not going anywhere, or this person's so, so clear now they should be released. We don't need to have an oral hearing. But in most cases, they say, all right, we want to see you and, and talk to you. So you're then, the Pro Board has got about 250 members. Right. Probably what will happen is a panel of three of them. Just to stop you there, they are from what professions? Pro Board uh, members uh, are basically sort of four types. So there'll be judicial members who are retired judges or sometimes serving judges. There'll be psychologists, psychiatrists, and people from a range of other backgrounds normally connected with the criminal justice system in some way. So lawyers, probation okay. officers, that kind of thing. Do you have thing. to be linked to the criminal justice? No, okay. no, no, no. So they're not all. So it's a variety. But you've got to be able to, you know, the basic criteria, you've got to be able to assess some very complex material yeah. and make sound judgments on it. That's and it's paid? Paid. Okay. Yeah, it's paid, right. paid role. So some Pro Board members will pretty much make it their full-time job and work, do hearings pretty much every day. Other okay. people will fit it in with other things that they're doing. So right. that'd be a question that the woman, in this case, there you are, sitting in your parole cell, uh, uh, prison cell, waiting for your parole yeah, hearing. Yeah, thinking if I'm going to prepare for who this, are who these am people? I going to be talking these people? to? Who are these people? Right? Yeah. So the hearing will take place in a in, in the prison. There'll be a room in the prison set aside for this and just be one of the kind of meeting rooms probably. Mm. You'll come in, uh, you'll have your offender supervisor, probably your probation officer or offender manager there. Might be other people who know you in the prison who can talk about you. And in your case, if you've committed a murder, there will be uh, psychologists who've assessed you. If you're not happy with the assessment, maybe your lawyer will ask for someone to do another assessment. So there may be more than one psychologist uh, present. And generally what will happen is that the Pro Board members, it, it's a court. When it sits, it's a court. So it has the legal status of a court. Okay. But it will be on the whole less formal and less adversarial. Uh, in its functional court. They'll try to put you at ease yeah. because they want you to speak as openly and frankly uh, as you can. Yeah. yeah. And and you said, I'm sitting there. Who do I have? Remind me who I have So with you me. will have your uh, uh, lawyer there. Uh, always. Uh, always. But yeah. if, you, if you want, right. uh, you can have, have a lawyer there. There might be the one or two exceptions, but generally you'll have your lawyer there, paid for by legal aid. Uh, you can have, you might have uh, family uh, can come and, and uh, you might have witnesses that you've asked to be there to speak on your behalf who you think know you well. And as I say, there'll be offender managers, offender supervisors, other prison staff who know you there as well. Mm -hmm. okay. And essentially what the, the panel will go through, probably talk to all of those other people first and then ask you what you've got to say. Yeah. And I think it's a very difficult 
thing for you because they will ask you very direct questions about the circumstances that led to your offence and whether you understood what happened and what drove you to commit the offence properly. And that can be very emotional for people. You can't not talk about it. And it's very difficult, isn't it? If you're not particularly articulate and if you find talking about emotions difficult, which is the vast majority of yeah. uh, the world, probably, yes. and then you're judged on, well, well you're, you're not judged, judged on lots of you're things. You're not judged. Okay. Say, let's come back to the how they make the judgment. Yeah. But they'll do that. But they will ask you to talk about that. And they will ask you to talk about what's going to happen when, if you leave, if you leave, how do we know you're not going to reoffend? Where will you live? What are you going to do to support yourself? All of those kinds of things. Mm. And that can be uncomfortable too. Mm. Because you very difficult, right? Because if you've been in for 20 years, it's like, well, I have no idea. I'm going to be homeless. Um, I'd like a council flat, but I don't think I'm going to get one because I've murdered someone. And my it, children it, have been it, taken it, into care, and so I'm probably going to hit the bottle and start injecting heroin. Well, that may well be the question we're going to ask you. Right? Yeah. That may well be, how's that? How are you going to avoid that? Now, you, you, if you've got a reasonable relationship with your offender manager, Hopefully, some things will have been sorted out. In your case, if you can remember, you'll probably go to a probation hostel first. That's and as a woman, I'd go to a probation hostel that would have men in it? No, no. But you will probably be a long way from where you live. Maybe that'll be deliberate. Maybe we want you to get you away from your former associates, depending on the kind of crime. Or maybe actually it's quite important you are near your family. Maybe your family is very supportive. Mm. If you've got a supportive family, that's a big plus. So you'd look at all of those features. So it's... And the way they make the decision, actually, we there is a they look at three things basically. We know we have a lot of evidence about people who commit particular offences in particular circumstances, how likely they are to reoffend. So statistically, in fact, someone who so in your case, someone who's killed, killed a woman who's killed a husband is very unlikely to kill anybody else. We mm. know that statistically. Mm. Can't say never, no. but very unlikely. Whereas if, on the other hand, you were an instrumental robber, you know, you were doing robberies with violence, yeah. actually, we know you'd be quite likely to reoffend, right? Yeah. So you, there's some statistical evidence, right? But you can never be 100% certain. You might say an older person, you know, maybe you've done a very long sentence. We know then you're quite unlikely to reoffend. Mm. Whereas actually, you're a young guy, you know, you're, you're more likely to reoffend. We know some of those circumstances. Well, then look at what you've done in prison to try and reduce your risk. Have you done kind of programs that might uh, help you think through how you behave and you act? What have you done in prison to uh, uh, reduce your risk? And then we'll look at what's available for you when you leave prison, what plans of probation got to make sure you're properly supervised and uh, are going to be looked after. Mm. So it's not about saying that when you leave, you know, we are 100% sure you are on the straight and narrow mm. actually we're not we're not asking that we're really looking about what's your risk of committing serious offenses and it may be say like actually we do think there's a risk you'll go back to drugs we do think there's a bit of a risk uh, that you will do x y or z but you've got a very strong probation manager who's got a really good plan for supervising you so actually we're pretty confident that if we, there's any signs of you going off the rails that can be picked up quite quickly and then you'll get recalled right so there'll be very strict, probably in your conditions, conditions, license conditions, about what you could do after release, who you can see, where you can go, how often you have to report to your probation officer, all of those kinds of things. Okay. So I'm sitting in front of the board, it's going well, and the board decide that 
how quickly could I be well, released if uh, I've been well, a model well, prisoner and you think my risk of rear well, let, let's, let's be, just one other thing about it. I think one of the really difficult things is actually your behaviour in prison is not necessarily that critical. Yeah? Okay. Because it's not a very good indicator of how you behave after prison. Yeah? No. So model prisoners, you could be a model, you know, let's say you're a Mr. Big Gangster, mm. right? you could be a model prisoner. Doesn't mean you're not going to be at it again the moment you leave. <laughs> yeah, you know how to play the right? game. On the other hand, maybe you are a pretty chaotic woman with lots of problems. You know, you're a bit of a pain in the neck, frankly, when you're mm. in prison. You're not a model prisoner. But actually, we think that's partly due to your circumstances. When you leave, actually, you may be much less of a... Your, your behaviour is manageable in the community. Mm. It doesn't mean you're going to be a great citizen. That's not what we're looking for. But actually, we think the risk of you committing a further serious offence is very small. Yeah. So behaviour isn't a critical thing. I remember talking to a guy uh, who was doing an indeterminate sentence. And he's, he's uh, in prison. He'd kind of given up a bit, really. And he was the wing brewer, basically. His thing was right. he brewed hooch. Okay. And, um, and it was a kind of game for him, really. It was about outwitting the authorities. You know, I think Got to keep yourself busy somehow. Exactly. <laughs> like, but it wasn't an indicator. The fact he was doing that, well, he wasn't going to be doing that when he left prison. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be yeah. a market for hooch when he left prison. So it wasn't an indicator, particularly, right. of how he would leave... Uh, how you behave when you left, right? Yeah. So that's quite a critical thing. Your behaviour in prison is not... Uh, and I... Now, you can argue about whether it should be or not. But so what we're looking at is about what your risk is when you leave, right? About your risk of committing a serious further offence. Not whether you're a good person, not, not whether you've been punished enough, not whether the public are outraged by what you did. It's simply trying to take as an evidence-based decision as we can about what your risk is when you're released. And what if you've perpetrated violence against staff members whilst you've been in prison? There would be two things about that. So first of all, the key way of dealing with that would be, uh, have you been uh, charged? If you committed violence, that's an offence, have you been charged? You'll do time for that. You'll be punished for that. The question will be not so much the violence, but why you committed the violence. Right. So, so if the violence, which it might well do, indicates that you are a... Uh, you know, you haven't control, can't control your temper, mm. basically, then that would be a pretty good indicator that you're likely to be a risk when you're, you're, you've left. But not, in a sense, the offence itself. So, you know, you could talk to, again, give you another example. I remember talking to a guy, a pro hearing uh, guy who's in Feltham, and he got into fights in Feltham, and he said, look, if uh, somebody comes up and disrespects me and I don't respond, Next time, he'll give me a push. You know, if I don't respond to that, next time, he'll beat me up. What What do you want me to do? Now, actually, we didn't release him in that, uh, on that occasion. But it's not as simple as saying that your... The point I make is your behaviour in prison is not necessarily a good indicator mm. of what your risk will be when you leave. Yeah, I probably think far too much about how I would behave if I was sent to prison and what I would be like as a prisoner. Um, and I sort of think... You know, if it did happen to me tomorrow, because none of us, you know, are above the law and can say it's never going to happen. But I sort of think then if my children were removed off me and taken into care, I mean, my behavior 
would go up the wall. And then also I think, you know, the people in the system, and we know that the system is very far from perfect. And if I didn't get those visits from my children, the lawyer didn't call me back, I couldn't use the phone. And actually those things beyond my control, if I was trying to better myself and bring my life back together again from inside prison, which is what I'd be trying to do, I would then go absolutely crazy. I think think, think that's right. I mean, one of the things I used to do when I was chair of the Pro Board, and I tell students, talk to students about it now, is sometimes I'd get some of the judges on the pro board were, you know, very uh, mindful of their judicial status and like to be treated properly, and would sometimes complain to me about being kept waiting at the prison gate. You know, they weren't allowed in quickly. So what do you, you know, prison delays or whatever. And then you get stuff back from the prison saying the pro board member came in was kind of rude to the gate staff and you'd have to sort this all about. And I used to say to them, well, look, imagine everywhere you go, for the day, you've got 16 gates to get through before you can get from A to B. We get out of your cell to wherever you've got to be. And on gate six, there's some stroppy member of staff who can't be bothered, and you lose your temper and you get a nicking, which is a bit like what happened on the gate when you were going in. I'm dubious about whether that should then be, you should read too much into that about your behavior, you know, how someone's going to be outside. So there's a bit about just imagine how frustrating prison is. But the, but the primary duty of the uh, pro system is to protect the public. So the the difficulty you've got, you the woman who's up for pro life, your life sentence, is it's not us who've got to prove that you're going to be dangerous. It's you that got to prove that you're going to be safe. It's a hard thing to do when you're in prison. And we won't, we will be, the pro board is very risk averse. Mm. You know, right, so, so actually, uh, you know, you could speak theoretically about a lot of things, but if you keep losing your temper in the prison, then that would make us, you know, properly anxious about how you're going to be when you get out. Yeah. And then I suppose, um, as I'm sat there in front of this group of people, there's two things, the sort of what went before and what's going to happen after. and what has gone on before. So, well, I wanted to do my anger management program, but I couldn't get there. There aren't enough staff. In fact, there were loads of programs five years ago or 10 years ago when I was doing my life sentence, but they've all disappeared um, because of the cuts that have come through to the prison service. So how can I prove to you? It's like, well, I, I try to, but I'm afraid the system's in meltdown and I haven't been able to do, and I haven't been able to prove myself. How is that my fault, parole board? It's not your fault. It's not your fault, but that's the... Actually, our parole board's focus is actually not you, it's about the public. Are you safe to be released? Unless you've done the stuff that's necessary, people think it's necessary to reduce your risk, you're not gonna get released. Oh dear, okay. And then the after bits, I suppose the difficulty the probation system have, it's like, okay, well, Edwina's coming out. Um, you know, she's been good, yeah. she's proved yeah. herself and what she's yeah. jumped through the hoops that she can. But unfortunately, because the probation system has taken a lot right. of cuts, um, where she's going back to, there's only anger management groups with lots of men. We know her history has been yes. abuse and yes. domestic right. violence. She's not going to do well in an anger management course with lots yeah. of other men. Um, but no, exactly. So you've what got to are have we going to do? Outside, you've got to be properly supervised. You've got to have a relationship. You've probably got, you know, it's more likely with women probably to be uh, sort of drug offences. Have you got the rehab programs that you need for that? Uh, so it is going to be um, uh, tricky. And the, the key thing for women is 
whether there is a probation hostel you can go to. There are no probation hostels for women in Wales, for instance. Yeah. Right? So actually, can we, let's say actually you've got a supportive family. Right? We don't think you're yet ready to live at home. We want you to be closely supervised. So we want you to be put in a probation hostel. Unfortunately, the probation hostel that's available for you is in the Midlands, your family live in South Wales. So the difficulty there is that source of support that might actually have made you safer because they can fix you with a job or whatever, they keep an eye, is you're a long way from it. Uh, so that's a real uh, difficulty. It's amazing uh, that anyone makes it. Well, about half the people who come before the bubble get released. Okay. Uh, uh, or get sent to an open prison. So it's a reasonable kind of rate. Yeah, because that's the other sort of um, role, isn't it? It's not just about release, it's about being we, downgraded can, to you, a more open prison. Probable can, it can decide whether to release you, but it can only advise whether you should go to an open prison. So okay. that would be the decision of the Secretary of State. And an open prison for the listeners who aren't sort of in the system is a sort of less secure. Yeah, you go out to work, yeah, come yeah, back yeah, in the won't, evening. Won't have a fence, basically. So you will be, you will have to stay there every evening. But you could. So for certainly for people who've done a long sentence, as say maybe you have, actually it's quite an important stepping stone sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, you know to help people adjust, uh, you know to doing things for themselves rather than being told what to do every minute. But two other things I think worth saying. I mean, one is the uh, serious further offence rate. So about half a percent of the people at parole board release. Uh, commit a serious further offence. Mm. Okay? So I think it's important to be clear what that means. And often that will mean a woman getting smashed up or killed. Right? You know, it's not a, let's not sort of mince our words here. This is a very uh, serious, means serious. Right? Uh, you've got a um, half a percent. You know, if you look at most other institutions, it's a pretty good success rate unless you start putting that in numbers. You know, that's about... Uh, uh, probably uh, will decide to release uh, about, uh, I think it's about 7,000 people a year. So half a percent of that is about 35, about, you know, one a fortnight commits a serious further offence. Okay. I personally don't think you can reduce that number much unless you just don't release anyone. It's, I, you know, I, and I think a really important thing, there is no completely 100% foolproof way no. of deciding what your future behavior is going well, to no, be like. We're human right? beings, aren't we? So you can't and we will err on the side of caution. You know, that's it. It sees its primary responsibility as protecting the public, but uh, will, in the end, recognizes that people do change, will try and release people. And I think myself, you know, it goes back to it. I I think some there have been changes now to the way the poll board works, which I think are good changes. So uh, uh, now, if you're the victim, uh, you can now get a explanation of why the poll board made its decision, which I think is kind of long overdue, and you can ask for a review of a poll board decision, or you can get the secretary of state to ask, which again I think is an important uh, uh, safeguard. And the prisoner can ask for a review. If you were turned down, you can ask for a review. Okay. I think that's quite a good system, essentially sort of an appeal yeah. uh, mechanism. But I, I think one of the other things is, is actually, I think, because these are such difficult decisions, I think like human nature is we like to kind of, I, I think, so rely on something that gives us some, uh, uh, almost like a safeguard. So the evidence about, look, they could do this program, we can assess the risk in that way. It makes us feel better about the decision we're making. But the fact is, we can't be 100% accurate. And I think there's quite a strong argument for saying, actually, we should take more account of someone's behaviour in prison, whether it's 
affects their future risk or not, <clears throat> actually, there's an argument in, in itself that people should behave properly in prison. That, you know, for instance, uh, there's been a controversy over the Helen's Law, which we talked about earlier, which essentially means that the Pro Board, which puts in law what would be the Pro Board practice anyhow, is that someone can't be or very exceptionally released if they haven't said what's happened to the body of their victim. Right. Can you quickly describe um, to our listeners what Helen's Law is so, so, or was or was? So Helen's Law. So Helen, Helen McCall was uh, murdered. Um, I forget now the name of the man who did it, but that's not important. And who has consistent some, you know, decade or two, two decades ago, I think, and he has consistently uh, refused to say where the body is, which of course causes huge distress to her, Helen's mother, who's campaigned to say that you shouldn't be released until you tell us where the body is. is. Now there might there might be some exceptional cases where you know maybe the offender's got dementia or they don't kind of know, but but generally, I mean, I'm I'm very sympathetic to Helen's mother. I met her. I'm very I agree with her basically. But if the system is about your future risk, right? then maybe actually then there's no particular evidence that's saying where the body is affects your future risk. Right? So as the system works at the moment, that is not necessarily a determining factor. Mm. Now, I think you should make an argument that, well, look, actually, you're, you know, in terms of public credibility, your behaviour, how you behave to the victim should be a factor in itself, regardless yeah. of whether it affects your future risk. Actually, showing some concern for the victim, showing some, uh, you know, your behaviour in prison should be part of the explicitly part of the decision making process. Absolutely, because surely if you're not sort of feeling the empathy and realising the magnitude of the hurt that you've caused, then you're not really sort of moving on and dealing with the problems. It may be, for instance, that you're now an old man. Yeah. So you committed this offence when you were a young guy, you are now an old man. And you might have been on drugs, intoxicated. Objectively, we know that you're very unlikely to commit another offence. Right? But actually, you still haven't said where the body is. So maybe maybe regardless of the fact that we know you're unlikely to commit another offence, actually, that should be a factor. And also, if you're, you, you can, sorry to interrupt you, but you can be um, unlikely to physically harm someone. But what about when you're psychologically harming someone? Well, you can do that. And that goes back to the sort of the quite tight definition of the release criteria, which is about a serious mm. further offence. It's not about... So, so I, I also think... And also, I think what that would mean is that there you are, going back to our woman who's facing a 20-year sentence. Actually, what you do at the moment, actually, what you do doesn't really make much difference. It's what the system does to you. And if the programme isn't available... Uh, uh, then that's your tough luck, basically. But maybe there ought to be more uh, um, opportunity for you to demonstrate that you're worthy of release. So actually, maybe your behaviour ought to count for more in in small ways. Maybe the fact that, you know, that you haven't lost your temper, you put up with all of this stuff that's really irritating, despite the fact you're really upset about your family or whatever it might be. You've kind of dealt with that. You've dealt with that in a more mature way now. Maybe that should count for more. Right? Mm. And we know because some of the stuff I think is quite counterintuitive. So, for instance, this business about whether people have fully admitted what they've done. We know, for instance, or at least psychologists, I think quite a lot of psychologists would argue, that shame is a protective factor. Right? So that particularly, say, men who've committed sexual offences, who then deny it, and particularly have denied it to their partners... Uh, do that because they're ashamed of what they've done. Mm. And we know, actually, statistically, that reduces risk. 
But on the other hand, and, and then once you start to deny it and you've denied it to your partner and your partner is stuck by you and believed you, it then gets very difficult to come clean, right? So, we, so if you're simply looking at future risk, you might say, okay, it's, it's quite a complex question. But you might say, okay, for the satisfaction, but actually what it also ought to be is about whether you dealt with the victims of your crime properly, whether you fully admitted what you did, about whether you're public, you know, part of the public acceptability. So actually, if you're denying your offences and you've been convicted of them or you have, and you've continued to hurt people through that denial, going back to your point about psychological harm, maybe that should count against you. So I think one of the future kind of reforms of the system is should it move away from this kind of, I would argue like slightly pseudo-scientific uh, sort of view that look we can precisely diagnose your risk and then we can treat it mm. uh, and it's about something that's done to you to a system that's more that doesn't it still has you know I think you have to include assessing risk as a critical bit of the decision making but takes into account other factors like is your remorse genuine and that might be expressed by the information you give the victim. What's your behaviour in prison like, for instance? And maybe those should count more as part of the decision-making process. Because I think that would then make the process more understandable and acceptable to the kind of public. Yeah. And you have to be hugely emotionally intelligent, I imagine, to sort of be a parole board member. And I imagine, you know, quite a few people aren't emotionally intelligent or interested in human behaviour. Because for me, I'm just hearing... You know, you need to be emotionally intelligent. You need to be interested in human behavior. You need to have a fundamental understanding that what happened to someone in someone's life bears a huge I, I relevance on their yeah. behavior. Well, I would argue probably members do a, do a good job. I mean, they, mm. they do. I mean, they, they have a very, they're very accurate. And I think that is about human intelligence. But these are really big decisions. You know, mm. they are very, you know, if you release someone and they do go and do something, that's terrible, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you have someone who, who, let's say you're a woman, you know, where you'll feel quite sympathetic to the circumstances that led to her offence. Mm. But actually, you know, while she's in prison, her, uh, uh, you know, her mental health maybe is deteriorated. Evidence of her risk is actually, you know, she can't produce evidence that she's going to be safe. Uh, she isn't convinced about what, what uh, that her risk has been reduced, so she stays in prison. That feels, you know, that's very difficult too. You do need emotional intelligence. I think that is as important as, as you know, EQ is important as IQ. You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet. Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, can you explain to me um, the release at the halfway point? So, I've been given eight years. That means I have to serve four. Is the parole board involved in me only serving half of my sentence? No, no. All prisoners will only serve half their sentence. So if you get a, if you have a determinate sentence, if the judge says I'm sentencing you to eight years, you'd only serve four, and then you'd have four on license because supervised. Okay, by so on but license in the community, being no, um, supervised by probation. Nothing so. to do with the parole board at all. Right? Okay. What there will be is a small number of offenders who've been given what's called an indeterminate sentence basically that means one without a time limit yeah no end for the most serious offenders then the parole board does have to decide whether those people are safe to be released so it's only a tiny point so quite what often happens someone gets released automatically the halfway point of their sentence people think that's the parole board making a dodgy decision it's not nothing to do with the parole board We've been talking a lot about the criminal, the prisoner, the person in prison. We touched on Helen's Law, which is about the victim. And would you say you have an equal duty to the victim and the offender? Or should this be about getting justice for the victim? Because I think the very fact that the justice system is called the criminal justice system always puts the criminal at centre stage. And the system sort of works around the criminal. And often the victims sort of really get forgotten. Do you think it should be called the victim's justice system, or actually just the justice system. You know, the original victim, as in the criminal justice system as a whole, you know, offences aren't prosecuted in the name of the victim, they're prosecuted in the name of the Crown. It's not, uh, uh, you know, the, in a sense, you know, what we've done for hundreds of years is we passed over the kind of obligation for prosecution and punishment from the individual victim to the state. And that's how, and I think, I think that's the right system. Hmm. And where does the parole board sit today on the sort of, you know, the diversity aspects? We've done work started when I was there and it's continued since. So the latest wave of recruitment has been much more successful in getting diverse membership. So it's not reflective of society as a whole, but it is much more diverse than it used to be. Uh, and it's about, I think it's 50-50 uh, gender split, I think, or maybe more women. Right, and um, BA, ME... Uh, yeah, not, I, I don't know what the current figure is, so it was very poor, it is now improved. I think it's comparable with other bits of the criminal justice system, which isn't saying much. Yeah, because is it meant to reflect the people in prison or should it reflect society as a whole? It needs to be reflective of the society of which is part, I think. But this is not a... You know, one of the other things, I think, is it's quite important it's not there as in, say, the American, the American system would be very explicitly about representing public opinion, mm. right? So the American system would be much, state by state, would be much more about, look, the public are outraged by this offence. Our job is to represent that, uh, uh, reflect that, and therefore we won't release you. The Pro Board isn't there to do that. The Pro Board is there to make a judgment on the evidence before it. And, and most of you know, the, the fact that a particular offence is notorious doesn't mean it's the kind of worst offence that becomes before the parole board. So, and indeed, if you go back to women, often women are, the, the publicity that goes around women offenders, for instance, is often very different to the publicity that 
men who've committed similar offences would get. So if we simply were there reflecting, in a sense, public opinion or media opinion, I think that would be, uh, that would result in injustice, I think. Yeah. So you try to make decisions on the basis of the evidence that's before you in the dossier and what the witnesses have said, not on what the newspaper headlines will be. Right. Um, and talking of notorious cases, um, you resigned your job as the head of the parole board over the John Warboys case, yes. didn't you? The um, serial rapist taxi driver. Are you happy to talk yeah, about sure, that? Because you yeah. also touched on media. And I think that's really important because I think the Warboys case sort of gripped us all, um, really. And it was so high profile. You were the head of the parole board at the time. Do you mind telling us what uh, happened? Yeah, okay. well, John uh, Warboys uh, was a black cab driver and his um, uh, mode of offence uh, was that uh, he'd get women in his cab who maybe had had a bit to drink he would spin them this line about having won the lottery and then he would essentially give them a spiked drink of champagne. Uh, often the women didn't know exactly what had happened to them afterwards, although they knew something pretty gross had happened. Uh, and he did that, um, some estimates of 100 women. And I think the case overall does represent a failure of the criminal justice system. Police were very much criticised for their investigation into it. And he was eventually uh, charged, I forget the exact number, but I think it's a dozen cases. Yeah? Although he uh, subsequently, there's a civil case that assessed he'd committed uh, over 100, and these were serious offences. Now, the issue for the Pro Board was that the Pro Board made decisions on the panel. So I, so I wasn't involved in the actual decision at all. So each panel is like a court, so I can't interfere in what, you know, I can't interfere what individual panels do. So it was a bit of a moment when they decided that because I mean, knew it was going to be trouble. How long had he served? He served what the judge said was the punishment part of his crime. So the question now about whether he was safe to be released. Right? Uh, and and so first of all, he, there were at the uh, his pro board hearing, there were uh, four psychologists present. There was one of the pro panel members was a psychologist, there were three other psychologists, uh, one for the prison, who hired by the prison service, there were two others who had assessed war boys in the past. All the psychologists present agreed he was safe to be released. Right? A critical question for the panel, uh, which the case turned on, was the extent to which the panel should have taken into account the war boys' alleged offences. Right. right. So the offences for which he hadn't been convicted. Okay. Right? And at the time, neither the panel nor indeed the people who provide the home, the Ministry of Justice who provided the dossier, nor the Home Secretary, the Justice Secretary was represented at the hearing. The view at the time was you shouldn't take into account things for which someone hasn't been convicted. And then in the... Uh, and that's the, right, would you... Well... Or is that sort of, again, what a blurry the, line of... It is a blurry line. I, yeah. I think uh, there are two things. I mean, it's a very fine judgment. So I think the victims, just to be clear, I think the victims had been uh, really badly let down by the system. And in a sense, I think the problem was just at the end of a system that failed them. I think we took, you know, and we were the only bit that took any responsibility for what happened. Actually, no one else seemed yeah, to Yeah, exactly. Right? But, one I mean, slice of a whole right. cake going on. But there. I think, so what, anyhow, so the victims uh, judicially reviewed the pro board decision. And the, the judge in the end said that what the panel should have done is it should have considered the further allegations 
but not determined them. Right? I think okay. that's a pretty tricky... Well, what's the point in considering it if well, you're not you might well ask. It? Far be it for me to agree or <laughs> disagree with the judge. So I think, I think it's a tricky... Now, what other people would argue is that, look, you know, quite often someone comes forward with a problem and you'll say to them, you know, they'll have committed a load of other offences they haven't been convicted for, and you would look at the patterns of offending, right? There's also some psychologists would argue that people who are involved in what you call spree offending, like war boys, mm. actually when they get caught, they stop, generally. Statistically, that what tends to happen, they're not. So there's a lot of arguments about that. I mean, I think where it all ended up, I think, was a reasonable place, because I think, basically, I think it's a good thing war boys wasn't released. Okay. Um, yes, I think I do. Uh, so, so I think it's a good thing Warboys was released. And, uh, and I think the way that it was dealt with was the proper way. He was subsequently convicted in a proper court where he had an opportunity to put his defence, where the evidence was heard of other offences and is serving more time determined by court. That's, that's how the system should work. You know, whatever, however heinous the offence you're accused of, you should, those allegations should be put to you. You should have an opportunity to plead guilty or not guilty. If you're pleading not guilty, defend yourself, etc., etc. Right? That that's how it should work. Warboys was convicted of other offences, and he'll do longer for that. I think that's correct. And then there have been reforms to the system, which, incidentally, we were advocating prior to the Warboys case, and actually the Warboys case accelerated them. So now, one well, one now one of the things is the problem will provide an explanation of its decisions, which I think is a good thing. And there is now a review mechanism so that if people aren't happy with the decision, either the victim or the prisoner, they can ask for the decision to be reconsidered. It doesn't have to go to a court. And I think that's sort of like a safeguards built into the system. So I think all in all, it ended up in uh, actually the results of the case were uh, positive, I think. Yeah, but quite traumatic for the multiple victims and, they were very and their brave, families. They yeah. were very brave, I think. Um, but it seems to me that this sort of key problem was... I guess going to a prosecution more quickly or thinking that it going for the 12 when actually there's over 100. So what do you do when it's sort of unraveling and unraveling, you know, and the court has got to a point where it's like, right, we're going to try him for 12 rapes. It's like, oh God, but we're now on over 100 people coming forward. I think there are ways at which in the original case you could take more cases into account. One of the other factors in the Warboys case is that the victims had previously won a civil action against the Metropolitan Police for the failures of their investigation. And that had decided on the balance of probabilities on a kind of 50-50 basis, rather than on a beyond reasonable doubt basis, which happened to but that had decided on a 50-50 basis that Warboys had committed other offences. Now, I think if that had been clearer in the dossier, I think the panel might have taken more account of that. So I think partly, I, I think, you know, I think it's frustrating about it, is I think that part of the problem was the information that was put before the panel on which they had to make a decision, right? So you know, you can't have the panel kind of Googling the case to try and find out what's, you know, what's Warby's been accused of. You've yeah. got to, it's like a jury, you can't go, you've got to make, you know, a, decision got to make a decision on the information in front of you, right? So I'm, I'm sympathetic to the panel in the kind of dilemma that they faced in that. Yeah. And I think they had to make, and I, and I think if you want to look at you know, I think the mistakes that happened in the Warboys case 
were primarily elsewhere in the justice system rather than with the public. The other thing is, you know, and this is why it's so important to understand the nature of male offending against females or female offending against males, because for me, um, the little I know of sort of these things is it's a classic example of when a victim comes forward or maybe a group of victims that empowers other. Let's talk about the female victims in this case. And I'm also thinking about Harvey Weinstein. There's a, there's a bravery of coming forward and the more people that come forward encourages other people sort of, oh, they've been listened to, I'll be listened to as well. And that snowballing effect of, oh my God, you know, very quickly 12 becomes 100. Um, so do you think the system understands that and takes that into account? You're moving away from the pro system now. I mean, this is mm. you know, going further back. I mean, I think it doesn't. I think if you look at how the system treats women victims, mm. I think it's still very poor. And I think you're right. But, you know, there are real dynamics, you know, I think, on the one hand, the fact that a victims come forward, it's going to be prosecuted, will encourage other victims to come forward as well. That's a good thing. So the fact that we have arrested you for this offence, we want to publicise it because we want other victims to come forward. If on the other hand, you're not guilty of it, so you can look at some other notorious cases. So look at what happened around... Uh, you know, the whole thing with uh, Carl Beach, Nick, the scandal about the sort of child abuse, the allegations that were made against some prominent figures, all of that kind of stuff, who the fact that they were accused was made public. You know, they, they could argue they were innocent and, uh, well, they would argue they were innocent and their lives were destroyed. So there's uh, all of these things mm. about where you strike the balance. And I think, myself, you have to be really careful about reducing the safeguards that protect the innocent from being wrongly convicted of offences. And I think uh, if we sort of move the system because we think these victims have not been treated properly, in the end, the protections that we have, the people they're most important for are the most powerless and the most uh, marginalised in society. So you might, so let's say, all right, I think, you know, we will make it we will publicise offences more. We will, uh, uh, you know, we'll publish the that someone's been accused or arrested for this offence. We will, we will uh, make it easier to convict people. Actually, what we know is who gets the worst handling in the media is women. Right. So actually, you do these things for maybe what is a good reason, but if you if you if you reduce these safeguards without very careful thought. As I say, I think the people who lose most by that are the most marginalised and most disadvantaged. So I think, but there are balances. There are balances to be struck, and uh, and I and I think these are ultimately political decisions about how you 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 know you, about how you start this and go back to the pro body. In the end, I think the panel, you know, what what the panel should do is make its decisions on the evidence before it and on the law as it stands at the time. You know, mm. I think it would be a bad thing if you have essentially, uh, you know, say, well, like actually, we don't we don't like the way the lawyers will go off and make other will make. We're trying to do things differently. It wouldn't stand up. I mean, the Warboys case was a high-profile case. You were in a high-profile job, and so because of the media interest around it, obviously, particularly in London, it seemed like a high-profile head had to roll, and arguably that was yours. Well, I think that, that's. Uh, I think it's quite important. I, th I think personally that, um, and I've said this last time. So I think if you are the head of an organisation, you should take responsibility for what that organisation does, whether you're directly involved in the decision or not. 
So if I, only I, there were more people that right, took right, that right, right. So <laughs> no, But also I think like, you know, it's not a sort of, um, you shouldn't take on jobs like being chair of the Pro Board unless you thought through what's yeah, likely to happen. Exactly. But what the Pro Board does, it, I mean, I think, I think one thing to say about Warbikes, I mean, goes back to this point about the degree of media attention a case gets is not the same thing as its seriousness. So, so well, so Warbikes case was, you know, at the top end of the sort of cases that sort of offences that the Pro Board deals with, but it was by no means unique. And there's other people, other cases where people have done similarly hair-raising, awful, nightmare things who just haven't had the sort of, you know, who are much less kind of controversial, just haven't had the kind of publicity for some some reason. I think we have to be very careful about making decisions on the basis of those sorts of decisions on the kind of uh, potential media kind of reaction, really. So, you know, Pro Board releases people who've done horrible things. You don't get to come before the Pro Board unless you committed a very serious offence and you've hurt people. Uh, that's who the Pro Board releases, right? And I think one of the dangers of the, which I'm pleased about the way this discussion has gone, I think one of the real problems for people who are interested in prison reform and criminal justice reform is that too often, and I'd count myself amongst those people, we appear to neglect the harm that crime does to its victims. And I think it's important that we should start with a discussion about that, start with a discussion about when to do that, and start talking about like smart justice, I think much more than tough justice. How do you protect people uh, properly, uh, but I think if you appear to downplay the seriousness of the offence, even quite minor crime commits, you know, you know, if you're the little old lady who's living on the estate and you're fighting to come out in the evenings because the kids are marauding around the estate, that's your quality of life destroyed. Actually, we shouldn't d diminish that, but it doesn't therefore mean that our only response to that, the only kind of thing in our armory should be, is longer and longer sentences. Yeah. But, but I don't think, but I, so I think we have to try and hold both thoughts. We about, seem to be moving in that direction. We are definitely moving in that direction. Government. We are moving in that direction. Yeah. And I think what you'll then get is sentence infection. So I don't think, for instance, you know, I don't personally, I think you could say, okay, people who, you know, a small number of people who committed the most serious offences, maybe you could argue they should spend longer in prison. Right? You could do that. But that will have an inflationary effect. It won't just be them. It won't, they won't, because the system sort of smooths itself out, other people who've committed other offences will get dragged forward. Offender X who's done this horrible thing that's hit the headlines, maybe he should get 20, 25 years rather than 20. But the consequence of that is go back to where we started. The woman who murdered her husband who got 20 years right, and who was a victim of abuse uh, and all of those things, her sentence will go up too. It'll be dragged up as well. Yeah, and also, and I have this discussion with lots of friends of mine um, about where I think people can easily get confused is just because someone's done something serious, like a murder, doesn't mean that they're risky. Yeah, exactly. And I think those two things yes. are always yeah. merged together, yeah. particularly in the media. I've met double murderers who I'd leave my children with, but I have met people who haven't exactly. laid a finger on anybody that I'd not exactly. let my children go anywhere near. The statistic about that, actually, I bet you commit a murder, you're quite unlikely to do it again. You know, rob somebody to fund your drink, to fund your drug habit, you're very likely to do it again. But so you've got those issues. I think that the other thing that to be really clear about, which I think is problematic, is that I think we have unrealistic uh, ideas about what the state can do. Right? The state can't keep you 100% safe. Right? 
There is no method of judging what someone's future behavior is going to be like that is 100% foolproof. And I think that if you have unrealistic expectations about how these processes work, about how the police, what the police can do, what the courts can do, what prisons can do, you get you drive everybody to be more and more risk averse, right? Yeah. More and more bureaucratic, whether whether a system becomes more about protecting yourself. If something goes wrong, I need to show up the next one's out rather than actually about outcomes, about look, this is what is genuinely in the best interest of the community at large. And I think we have unrealistic, you know, I think we are I think also views of risk is something we need to be think more carefully and more openly about. I agree. However, I would say that the government could help us do a better job by helping us to create a system that is just safer and more humane and more decent. And the fact that the system is so unloved and neglected, we are putting people in prison. Now the sentences are going up. These people will be in prison for longer and they are gonna come out in a much more damaged state than than they went in. And then of course, and I know you know this, um, and then the probation system get told to sort of be more inquisitive and ask more questions. And they're probably sort of saying, well, I'd like to know why I've got 60, mapper cases and 60 very dangerous people and nowhere to send them in the community, no services to put them in. And then of course the probation system gets blamed for these people who have actually been damaged by the system earlier on. I I think there's a very good, no, um, of course you're right. There's a very good, there's been a recent criticism, I think, by the Inspector of Probation about the National Probation Service and about how the cuts in probation numbers had affected the quality of their decision-making. And there's a line in there, I think, that was quite important. I said in a report or in, or in a report, about people working these roles needing time to reflect. Right? So actually, it's not simply you know you can do a measure that you know you get your 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 probation officer, you get the offender in, you spend 20 minutes with them, you ask them these questions. That's how long it'll take, and then you can move on to the next one. What actually you need is you need the space to say, I'm just not sure. I'm going to go and speak to so-and-so down the corridor and we'll talk it over and maybe they'll have a look. And we need time to reflect on this. You need time in a prison to say, look, so-and-so seems a bit down today. I've got time as an officer to sit down and actually have a bit of a chat with her to find out what's going on. You know, or I noticed her, you know, she didn't have a visit. I've got time to notice she didn't have a visit this week. So I'm going to go and have a word and see what's going on with her. Right? If actually you're you pared everything down to the kind of like these are the tasks you've got to do. This is how many minutes it takes you to each task. That's how long you've got, and that doesn't take account of staff being sick or whatever. Then you'll get worse qualities making. You need to get people making these judgments. You know what? What does emotional intelligence takes a bit of time? Actually, mm. it needs time, and I think that's a reflection time. That time to kind of talk it over, see what you think, that's one of the things that's got squeezed. And then I think that leads to worse decision making. Yeah. When it comes to the media and people's knowledge of serious offences or, you know, crimes across the board, really, is it better for us, the public, to know everything? Should we know everything? Should we be party to everything? I know you've called for more transparency within the parole board. So in my view, the public should be allowed into parole hearings. I'd allow journalists in. I would have a- In the prisons? uh, Yeah, or you don't have to have the hearings. I mean, 
Journalists, people won't want to go to every case, but I think if people want to go, you could do that. In for a small number of people, you could facilitate that in prison. Otherwise, have the case somewhere else, have the mm. hearing somewhere else facilitated. I think okay. the primary, I would open the system up. I'd have a register of cases available so people know what cases are coming up. There are downsides to that. Uh, it might mean if you've got an open case, people will be less frank in discussing what their offence is. It might make it more difficult. I think there are even some downsides for victims. So let's say you've opened the case up and you are, journalists are allowed in and they're reporting the details of what happened and parole hearing doesn't release someone. So you have a parole hearing every two years. The details of the case are rehearsed every two years. That can be very difficult. But on the whole, I think the importance of open justice trumps everything else and the downside. So there might need to be some safeguards, but I think that if you don't have open justice you don't make it as visible as possible people get suspicious people think things are worse than they actually are the Canadian system for instance is much more open than this one that does allow journalists in a similar legal system to ours that's the route I would think we should go down um, we've deviated wonderfully away so. from the role of the parole board but it's so fascinating because I think this is one of my big sort of bugbears when you're reading about things in the paper you're always reading about the act and then the punishment and actually you know the justice system is the police it's the judiciary it's the probation system it's friends it's family it's real lives you know there's a whole huge mix of things and often we talk about sort of one slice but um i know you're not the chief uh parole uh, the chief of the parole board anymore but if there were listeners who are interested in becoming more involved in the parole board where would they go and uh, what well, would you I look, look at the parole board's website the parole board has got a pretty good website i think with some now some quite uh so non-technical easy to understand information about how the parole board process works that's where if people are interested in being a Pro Board member, that's where vacancies would be advertised. They do, uh, you know, they, they've just done some, so there won't be any available at the moment, or there's other roles working for the Pro Board. The Pro Board website, I think, is a pretty good, uh, bigger. they've just updated it, they've got some good material on it, so uh, easy to find. Have a look at that, I would. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for talking to me. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.